This is Asha Voices. I'm JD Gray. Today on the podcast, we're hoping to expand your library as we feature conversations with authors who've been guests on the podcast, from an SLP whose children's book is equal parts personal and professional to a school-based SLP collecting and sharing personal stories. We'll hear from the voices behind the words on the page. It's the summer reading episode on Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Find opportunities for reflection and growth with these one-sheet resources at on.asha.org cc. We're beginning this episode in the speech-language pathologist's office, or maybe just outside the door in the waiting room. In her book, Everybody Needs a Turn, SLP Denise Underkoffler looks at the experience of the siblings who often spend time in that waiting room while their brothers or sisters receive services from an SLP. The book confronts the difficult emotions that can go along with being the sibling of someone receiving speech-language services. For Denise, the book is personal. She grew up with a sister who stutters. In addition, Denise's son has faced medical issues since birth, making her the parent of one child who had speech-language appointments and a daughter who did not. Later in the conversation, you'll hear from Denise's daughter, Abby Diaz, who is now an occupational therapist. From 2020, here's Denise Underkoffler, author of Everybody Needs a Turn. Well, the story is about a little girl, Hannah, who has a brother who goes to speech therapy often, and her parents also work with her little brother, Peter. And so Hannah often feels like she's waiting in waiting rooms while Peter is getting speech therapy. She doesn't get to participate. And also at home, in the book, I talk about it's time for her bedtime story with her family, and um, her parents are busy working with her brother, Peter. And she gets very upset, and she acts out. The parents kind of figure out that she's upset because she feels like she's not getting her turn. And then they start talking to the speech pathologist and they come up with some new strategies of how Hannah can be included in some of the therapy process. And it kind of changes the whole family dynamic. So it it illustrates how a sibling can feel and also gives a little bit of an example of signs that a family can look for, like acting out, showing behaviors, because siblings don't often know how to talk about this. So that's that's kind of what the story's about. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a bit of a twist. The sibling becomes a communication partner. It's something that people talk about a lot. You think of family-centered care uh, or family-centered treatment. How does that change things in the story, Denise? Well, actually, talking about this within families and focusing on family-centered therapy is something that we're talking about now, but for a long, long time, we didn't really think about it or talk about it uh, much at all. So in the story, once Hannah becomes more involved in the process, she does become his communication partner. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to show this in the story is I've done this in my own therapy sessions where I've incorporated the sibling into therapy and they have a little job to do 
and it actually kind of makes makes the sibling at times feel like they're part of the team. And it, it often turns into a win-win situation for both the child who's receiving therapy and the sibling, because the sibling can end up actually helping the, the child to talk even when they're at home and help them practice whatever the parents have been working on or the speech pathologist is is saying they need to be working on. Sometimes the child with the communication disorder is actually working harder for the sibling than for the parent or the speech pathologist. So it can become a win-win situation for both. You've been an SLP for many years. Have you seen examples where it didn't go as well, where a child was acting out? Is there someone that comes to mind? Yes, I actually had a situation where I was seeing a child that had a diagnosis of autism and the sibling used to sit outside my office and wait. And this child that I was seeing, he received many services. It wasn't just speech therapy with me. It was a lot of different kinds of services. So I would, I'm imagining that his sibling was waiting a lot during many different services And he actually stopped talking and eventually received a diagnosis of selective mutism. And when the mother talked to me about it, she said the psychologist felt this was happening because he wanted to participate and get the kind of attention that his brother was getting. And so he actually stopped talking so that he would start getting attention from others as well. That was a very drastic situation that I saw. It's usually much more subtle than that, but that one really took me aback. Yeah. Abby, I want to bring you into the conversation now. One thing I think is really well illustrated in this book is that a child can care deeply about their sibling, but still struggle with the complicated emotions that can come with being in the other room outside of the treatment. Did that ring true to your experience as a child? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I loved my brother so much and wanted to be around him all the time. But, you know, as we got older, he was a little bit older than me and things started happening in life. I had things I was interested in too. Not a lot, but you know, occasionally the things that I wanted to do or the things that I was interested in or the things that I was looking forward to couldn't happen or had to happen in a different way because his needs came first. So as a, a child and even like a young teenager, sometimes it's hard to like figure out those emotions when you're dealing with loving your sibling and wanting what's best for them, but also wanting what you want as well. Yeah. I can imagine that's difficult to navigate. Definitely. And I mean, my parents did a great job after they started to realize like, oh, wow, yeah, there, there's a lot of attention on him. Let's bring Abby back into this. And, you know, as I look back on it, they did a fabulous job. And I'm so thankful for the experience and everything I went through made me who I am today and the therapist I am today. And kind of being empathetic towards the sibling and the families. And, you know, I've been on both sides. So 
I'm thankful for it, but it's definitely something that kids need help navigating for sure. Denise, did your sister ever meet with an SLP regarding her stutter? Yes. She went to speech therapy for a long, long time. And I know that she really struggled with her stutter. And I think, you know, that's what really frightened me that I I worried about her because I could see it was such a struggle for her. So yes, I, I remember my mother taking her quite often and it really helped her. I mean, now as an adult, she's doing really great. That's wonderful. Do you have any memories of also having these complicated emotions and feeling perhaps left out, like you needed a turn? Yeah. I mean, you know, she was older than me. So, you know, it took me a while to figure out that she was getting help for her speech. And actually, many, many years later, I realized that I felt kind of guilty that I could speak so well and she struggled so much with it. You know, I didn't realize that as a child, but as an adult looking back, I did kind of figure that out at some point. Like, I think that's part of what confused me. Like, why was she having so much trouble with this? And I wasn't. And I didn't know what to do to help her at the time. So that was upsetting. Abby, uh, we're talking about family. And as the sibling of someone who is receiving um, speech language treatment as well as other treatment, I'm wondering how you think the experience influenced your life. It influenced my life greatly. Like I had said before, I'm an occupational therapist. And just from watching my brother receive therapy and services, I knew from a young age that I wanted to be in that allied health profession. I thought I wanted to be a speech pathologist because that's what my mom is, but I actually fell in love with occupational therapy and now I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. So it's impacted me greatly. And I think having a sibling with speech and language needs and other medical needs and disabilities, it opens my perspective and I can kind of relate to the family on a personal level. And I also relate on a therapy level as well. Denise, if there's one thing that you wanted people to take away from the book, what would it be? It would be that it's really important no matter what the situation is, whether a child has autism or medical needs or social needs or communication needs, it's really important that parents think about making sure every child within the family knows they hold a special place in that family and um, that they're very loved just as much as every other child within that family. I guess that would be uh, the one thing I would hope families would look at and um, really pay attention to. SLP and author Denise Underkoffler's book is called Everybody Needs a Turn. Find it in the ASHA store on ASHA.org. We'll put a link to it and other books from ASHA Press on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast. 
If you're enjoying this episode, check out the most recent release from Asher Press. It's called Terrence the Hothead. Nothing ever feels small to Terrence, the hot-headed teapot, who's always blowing his lid over small problems. How does he manage to cool down and start building brew tea full friendships? Find out from Asha Press's new picture book, Terrence the Hothead. Use this new book to show children how to recognize and manage their big feelings. The strategies in the book will help them express their feelings, gain empathy, keep calm, and build better friendships. Save 20% on the book through May 31st. Visit on.asha.org slash Terrence. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Cultural competence, cultural humility, and cultural responsiveness require an ongoing commitment. Invest in yourself and your clients when you use these one-page resources. Designed to help you reflect and grow, find all four cultural competence check-ins at on.asha.org cc. We'll turn now to an SLP working in the Minnesota schools. Alicia Fleming Hamilton was editor for the Asher Press book, Exploring Cultural Responsiveness. This book, designed specifically for those working in CSD, includes real-life scenarios curated by Asha's Multicultural Issues Board and poses thought-provoking questions for reflection. I spoke with Alicia at the end of 2020. A lot of the scenarios that I co-author are from my own personal experience. So they could be one specific case in its entirety or a bunch of other cases uh, where I kind of fill in the blanks. And I, I like to say that not because I think I'm this super culturally competent person. I'm definitely on my road in the process. Um, but just to demonstrate that we all make mistakes all the time and that that self-reflection is a really critical piece in learning from those mistakes and getting better. The introduction to the book says cultural competence, quote, requires ongoing critical self-assessment and the continuous expansion of one's cultural knowledge, end quote. And I mentioned that to Alicia, that the book does point out this is a continual effort. Totally, yeah. And I think that's like, maybe if that's one of the biggest pieces we can kind of hit home is that I, I'm never going to wake up someday and be like, I am culturally responsive. I'm culturally competent. I made it. Awesome. What's next? I think the whole idea is that this is a commitment of a lifetime and it's something that you devote yourself to doing because, I mean, it improves your practice. It makes you a better practitioner, but because it's right, it's, it's what we do so that we can serve people and really see their true humanity and their true value as unique individuals. Alicia acknowledges the book's release is timely and offers something for our current moment. I think specifically for me and my little bubble here, I live in a suburb of Minneapolis and unfortunately George Floyd was murdered here in May and it really has provided another catalyst for these these talks about the idea that race and racism is is all over the ways that we function in the United States and so I think Being able to have a book like this with a functional way to look at how to reflect and how to improve and ways to work through it is a really critical, critical piece right now. And to be quite honest, even though I was very involved with the writing, I still, I still read the stories and I find different angles to look at. I find different things I could have done better or different ways to approach the scenarios. So I think that they're timely, but they're also sort of timeless, if you will. 
I understand some of the scenarios are from your own life, including the first one in the book. It's called Border Trauma and Blurred Lines, and it tells the story of a child separated from her family at the border. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that story, both uh, how it's presented in the book and your personal experience. Yeah, so this one, I personally was a little hesitant to share it. So this story is about a little girl who crossed the border with her parents. They were fleeing violence. Her mother was told to sign paperwork on the Mexican side of the border while her father carried her across, and her mother was detained in Mexico. Her father was immediately arrested for illegally crossing the border and detained, and she was sent to emergency foster care system. And so somehow this sweet little girl made her way up to Minnesota. So you can imagine being less than two years old and traveling with no one you know in a foreign country where no one speaks your native tongue, all the way up to Minnesota from Mexico. That seems really scary already. And so she was placed in emergency foster care, and then our team was contacted to do an evaluation. So I work in birth to five services. And yeah, we... We struggled. In the book, Alicia uses a pseudonym, Shannon, and is part of an interdisciplinary early intervention team, providing services to the child referred to as Lucia. This was prompted because Lucia's emergency foster mother said the child had stopped talking, but responded to Spanish, and Shannon, as a bilingual SLP, was called in. The interaction is described in detail. Shannon brings a doll and speaks to Lucia in Spanish. Lucia responds. Their interaction leads Lucia to feed the baby doll with a bottle, and it leads Shannon to assess that Lucia's language skills are age-appropriate. At the end of the visit, Shannon gives the girl the doll, and then the book reads, Lucia began to cry. Shannon wants to see that Lucia's Spanish skills are maintained. She wants to see the child reunited with her parents, and she is deeply bothered by the border separation. The book reads, quote, Shannon was torn, end quote. And so I, as a practitioner, really struggled with wanting to insert myself to support her Spanish and be an advocate and an ally for her, and also because my heart was breaking for her, that she endured this On the administrative side, our social worker, who's amazing, was trying to contact any kind of family members. But because of what happened when she was separated from her family at the border, we were not permitted from ICE to contact her father. And so we have no contact information for him. And we had no ability to contact her mom because she was in Mexico. As a practitioner, you know, I went to school and studied on how to help kids talk and teach them their speech sounds and work on fluency. And, you know, you get into the job and and you're thrust into so much more. And it's kind of navigating what are my responsibilities and roles, but also what is my ethical obligation as a human being who's participating in the system that has separated this girl from her family? In the scenario presented in the book, the SLP, based off of Alicia, considered bending the rules to advocate for and work with the child. I asked Alicia if she could talk about that. What kind of thoughts an SLP might be having if they're feeling sympathetic or worried about the trauma a child might be experiencing and worried about the adverse childhood experiences, even if the SLP isn't, in that moment, seeing a language delay? Yeah, and I think that's a great question, and that's kind of the crux of this, the story, right? In this particular case, I was so moved by her story that I thought, well, you know, I could bend the rules and I could say, like, I see a need or a potential need, 
and continue to try to advocate for this student. But I also had to, you know, ethically, we're obligated to provide services and be really careful about when we're saying a kid has a need or a diagnosis. And every professional does that to the best of their ability. And so, like I said, I could have bent the rules and I could have said, well, based on X, Y, and Z, she would be at risk for a language disorder because of trauma later. But because I don't do that for every student that I work with, I work in Minneapolis and we have a really wide variety of cases. And many of our students experience trauma and that that doesn't just give them a free pass for service, unfortunately. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to try to put away the pulling on my heartstrings in this story and say, if I saw this kid and I didn't know her background, would I give her service? And, And the answer was no. But I'm a human being and I thought about the other aspect of it in that like also as a practitioner, can I sit by and watch this happen in my community, in my country to a fellow human being that I'm connected to? And the answer to that was also no. And so for me, it was about looking at other ways that were professional and appropriate to get involved in this process to ensure that we connect kids with their parents if they've been separated, or we educate the receiving team on how critical it's going to be for Lucia to maintain her Spanish skills so that when hopefully she's reunited with her family, she can still talk to them and communicate and have that bond. It's these little details that toe the line between wanting to do what's right and wanting to be professional and knowing how to do both. And it gets pretty tricky. And in the book, it says self-reflection is an important aspect of any professional practice. Is there anything you've learned from self-reflection since this time? Just reflecting again on this story, which I've read quite a bit, you know, as the editor and as the human who lived through it, there's never really the perfect approach. And I think it depends on, like, I probably given different points in my life, would have responded in different ways. And it doesn't make one response better than the other. It just has a lot to say about where I'm at in that situation, what resources I have, what knowledge I have, and things like that. So I think that self-reflection piece is just another way to grow in my knowledge and to continue to develop the skills that we all need and that, that are constantly evolving in our field. Asher released a statement in 2018 condemning the practice of separating children from their parents and asking the Trump administration to reunite families in a timely fashion. This was followed by a statement in 2019 to renew that call and end the, quote, horrific living conditions, end quote. The statement reads, quote, this unacceptable situation is potentially setting them up for lifetimes of struggle. Often, traumatized children require long-term comprehensive and sustained supports, including the treatment of resulting communication disorders, in order to successfully transition into adolescence and adulthood. Find more resources related to cultural responsiveness through ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs, or OMA. OMA helps ASHA members address culture and language and diversity among professionals and those with communication disorders or differences. To learn more about what OMA is doing to help with issues such as diversity recruitment, visit ASHA.org and search for Multicultural. Alicia also wanted to highlight the work of ASHA's Multicultural Issues Board in creating the book, specifically ASHA staff member Karen Beverly Ducker. And Alicia wanted to mention her co-editing team. Wendy, Annie, and John, and they are listed on the cover as well because they did so, so much work. And not just editing work and, and critical resource and research work, but just 
human work of helping me work through some of these stories. Like I said, I'm a white woman. And so I have this perspective that is not of someone who is unfamiliar with the dominant culture. And so to have Wendy and John and Annie's expertise and their just their kindness and their patience in teaching me was was invaluable. And they they're amazing professionals. Find the award-winning book, Exploring Cultural Responsiveness, in the Ashes Store. We'll put a link to the book on the blog post for this episode. While you're there, check out the recent children's book from Asha Press, Terrence the Hothead. Order the book now and save 20%. Visit on.asha.org slash Terrence. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's Cultural Competence Check-Ins, a resource designed to help you reflect and grow, continue increasing your cultural competence, humility, and responsiveness. Learn more at on.asha.org cc. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices.